I realized that in the past, I may have fallen below the high standards that we require of the armed forces that I have the honor to represent. It was a tragedy for him personally that he felt he had to resign, and it was a tragedy for defense that he had to resign, because he understood the brief, which he's held for the last three and a half years, extremely well. So Fallon has fallen. Last night, Sir Michael Fallon resigned as Secretary of State for Defence, a position he'd held for the last three years. His replacement is former Chief Whip Gavin Williamson. I'm Tim Cooper and I'm joined by the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, Professor Michael Clark. Mike, great to hear from you today. How are you doing? Mm, fine, thank you. Yeah, doing well. Been quite a 24 hours, haven't they? Do you think, first of all, Sir Michael was going to resign? Uh, no, because it looked as if uh, he had... There was no issue, really, with this thing about Julia Hartley Brewer that happened uh, in 2012. I mean, politically, that was neither here nor there. But he went to Downing Street yesterday, and that was a, the dynamics of that meeting, I think, must have been very interesting, because usually when a minister's in trouble, if they go to Downing Street and talk to the staff and the chief whip and the prime minister, if they tell them the truth then the Prime Minister would normally say, OK, we'll back you. And I suspect that he went to Downing Street to, to do that. And I think the Prime Minister listened to it and said, I'm sorry, you're going to have to give me a resignation letter. Um, I suspect that he thought yesterday morning that he would still be Secretary of State and yesterday afternoon realised that he couldn't carry on because there are rumours swirling around and he has admitted that, well, some of them are true and they will come out. So it's nothing to do with Julia Hartley Brewer. It's something that we haven't yet heard. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what does transpire over the next 24, 48 hours. But let's place that to one side for a minute, park it and move on to the new man, Gavin Williamson. Not a name many people will have heard of. Uh, no. Shortly after the news, I spoke to uh, Sky's defence correspondent, Alistair Bunkle, to see what he thought. It is a surprise appointment. He wasn't one of those names doing the rounds on Twitter and sort of in various gossip channels. I think people were looking to possible MPs with military service, such as Penny Mordant. She would have been the first female defence secretary had she been appointed. Uh, also, I think the first serving officer as well, given that she uh, serves in the Royal Navy Reserves. Um, perhaps Tobias Elwood was considered as well, a promotion within the MOD. But Gavin Williamson is a big figure in the Conservative Party, in the government. He's the chief whip, no military background. Um, so that would disappoint some people, I think, hoping that an appointment with a military background would come with sympathies. But he is a big player. I mean, the most surprising thing of all, in some respects, is that given how fragile the government is, that the Prime Minister has decided to remove her chief whip from that post into another post. Yeah, I mean, is that a sign that this is such an important appointment at this time, that someone with the reputation of a chief whip was needed by the Prime Minister? And you're right, you wouldn't normally move a chief whip at a difficult time unless you absolutely have to. The chief whip is the person who knows where the bodies are buried. They're the person who has to negotiate getting people through the lobbies, making sure they vote for the government's line. And Kevin Williamson was very proud of the fact that he hadn't lost a vote in this government, despite the fact they've got a very slender majority. And I don't think that problem goes away for the Prime Minister. She still has some key vote, um, really important votes that she's going to need to win. And she's going to need to have a chief whip who can deliver that for her. But on defence, Gavin Williamson is a tough operator. And I think that is what the Ministry of Defence needs. I think that's what they have with Fallon. But they need it because they're still negotiating the National Security Review and the possible implications that will have for the military. But also in the context of Brexit as well. 
Defence is a key card for the British government, and you're going to need someone to sell that on the European stage. Let's talk about Sir Michael Fallon. It wasn't a surprise, though, was it? It was an open secret in Westminster that he had a past. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's there was gossip doing the rounds, had been for a number of years. But I think it was a surprise in the way that everything moves very quickly. And I think it was a surprise to outsiders who would have seen the uh, the stories about Mike Fallon's inappropriate behaviour with Julia Hartley Brewer and thought, gosh, is that really enough for him to resign? I think the the truth is that probably there was other gossip doing the rounds and it was felt that he had to go because he holds the armed forces up to the highest standards and as the Defence Secretary, he had to hold himself up to those exact same standards. Uh, but yeah, I think a bit of a shock when I heard the news last night because the military always have a tough relationship with Defence Secretaries. But Fallon was a very proud Defence Secretary. I travelled with him a lot around the world. And this wasn't a stepping stone job for him. He saw this as sort of the pinnacle of his career. Yeah, I mean, was he? would you rate him as a, as a good Defence Secretary? Yeah, I would, actually. Uh, and I think you have to sort of take a sensible objective line to this because, of course, you'll have... I mean, some of your listeners will serve in the armed forces. Many of your listeners will serve in the armed forces. And they won't like what politicians do. But if you accept that we do live in an era where money is very tight, you know, Fallon grew into the job. I interviewed him within hours of him being appointed back in 2014. And he was shaky. He wasn't in control of his brief. By the time uh, he left... He was in control of his brief. He knew what he was talking about. He was fighting for more money for the armed forces. He was a big advocate of that and a true believer of that. And he was very passionate about what he was doing in that role. And as I said, there might be a disconnect between the politicians and the armed forces. But I think he was someone who was on the side of the armed forces, even if that meant having to make difficult decisions at times. Sky's defence correspondent Alistair Bunkle talking to me just a little bit earlier on. Michael Clark, what do you know about Gavin Williamson, this new defence secretary? Uh, that he's he's very bright, uh, he's tough, and he's very, very ambitious. I mean, he's what, 41, 42. Um, he, he's only been an MP since 2010, so he's and he hasn't had much of a political career before that. It wasn't as if he was uh, a party apparatchik much before that. He did local things. He's into pottery and, and That's design. Right. That's right. Um, but the fact is that he, he backed Theresa May for prime minister when the Brexit vote happened and everybody was looking at uh, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson. So he was loyal then. He backed a winner. And uh, most crucially, something that hasn't quite come out yet, I think, he was in that meeting that I referred to yesterday that Michael Fallon went into and came out of knowing that he would have to resign. Gavin Williamson was in that meeting. As chief whip, he would have been sitting you know, with or just behind or next to the prime minister. And in a way, you know, he has, he's got the job that he would have recommended the prime minister take away from Michael Fallon. That may reverberate around Westminster a little bit. They say that the tea rooms are a bit bemused by this. Some people in the Conservative Party are angry. Uh, we'll see. But it may look that there is a sort of that there's there's a hatchet man's job here that he's that he's done a job there uh, in some way that may reverberate 
badly upon him because he's re- he's known to be clever and very very ambitious. Um, so we'll see. But mm. also remember, this is a big spending department. The MOD is the fifth biggest spending department in Whitehall, and he hasn't run any sort of department uh, in Whitehall. He hasn't even run a small ministry, and he's now going into one of the big spenders. So that takes a bit of management. It takes a lot of political skill, and you are a military headquarters, and you've got to deal with the armed forces. You've got to represent the armed forces. It's it's a very big job, and there's not there's nothing quite like it in the rest of Whitehall, a job that combines the need to be diplomatic, to run a big department, to be in charge of a big budget, and also relate to the military. Even the Foreign Secretary, who is senior to the Defence Secretary, doesn't have that range of requirements placed upon him or her. So it'll be a very interesting experiment. Yes, it certainly will be. Let's bring in now the Times Defence Correspondent Deborah Haynes. Good afternoon, Deborah. How are you? Hi, good afternoon. Good, thank you. Let's talk, first of all, were you surprised by this appointment? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's, the whole thing's been pretty surprising, to be honest. Um, you know, Sir Michael Fallon was always sort of seen as, uh, within the, within the, um, the government as kind of this sort of safe, safe pair of hands. Um, and so for his demise to have happened so quickly was surprising. And then for, to have somebody that, frankly, I mean, I, like, I'm not a political correspondent, so I'd like, never heard of him, um, uh, coming in and, you know, he's now the defence secretary with no experience. Yeah, really surprising. Yes, I think most people, like yourself, Deborah, would have, if they had heard of him at all, it would have been because of the spider he got told off for keeping in his chief whip's office. I mean, that's that's how sort of negligible the outside world has seen of this person's career so far. Yeah, no, exactly. It would be interesting to see how the spider fares in the um, in the MOD. I, I assume they'll make a little place for him or her. <laughs> they might well do. Um, you touched on Sir Michael Fallon there. Yes, he was the man who would rock up on all the political interviews every Sunday, the, the government man. You could ask him as many questions as you want. I've interviewed him many times, and I know you have, and the party line would, would, would trot out there. How did you get on with Sir Michael Fallon? Well, I mean, it's quite, it's quite funny. We've got a strange relationship in the sense that I'm obviously um, a defence journalist, but then he's also my MP because um, I live in Sevenoaks. Uh, and um, on the uh, as an MP, he was always incredibly, incredibly charming and thoughtful. Um, and you know, like I, I gave birth to my third child um, last year, and I got a text message from him um, saying congratulations on my newest constituent, yeah, yeah. Um, which was really sweet. Um, and then obviously in the in in the work mode, um, I, you know, I've I've been very challenging and questioning of. Um, of what's happening in defence, because um, obviously Michael Fallon has 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 got a tough job to portray defence in a positive light, which is what he's been trying to do, and um, it, it it often the words that he uses doesn't reflect the reality of the situation and the serious financial strain that the military is under, um, and so um, you know I would I would write an awful lot about I have been writing an awful lot about about all of that exposing that and I guess that created a bit of friction mm. what about Gavin Williamson and his voting record on defense because everyone has been scurrying around trying to find out more about this and, and you can easily access key areas where he's voted what have you learned on on his voting in the defense field uh, I haven't done that yet sorry okay no that's fair enough but what big issues might be ahead of him now you touched on a few but what else is there 
Well, I mean, he's come at a, at a pivotal moment. I mean, for the for start, for a person who has got no background, um, no proper background in defence, although obviously he will have um, been exposed to the various defence briefings that Number 10 would have got, which would have given him a significant level in the short term, um, he's going to have to dive into meetings with the US Defence Secretary next week. Um, they're going to be uh, in Europe, and then also um, James Mattis is due to come to the UK. Uh, so... So for, for someone a complete novice to have such a high-level meeting in such a sport, short space of time is going to require a lot of cramming. Um, and then we've got the, we've got the autumn budget coming um, in three weeks' time. So lobbying the Treasury is, is well underway for all departments, and he's going to need to be part of that. And then there is this, um, this mini-defence review that's taking place, and at the same time, the annual budget round, the ABC spending round is still yet to be finalized for this year and the one for next year is underway and so all these things are going concurrently um, and he's going to have to be in charge of the lot finally uh, let's just conclude deborah with sir michael fallon how will he go down in history in terms of him being a defense secretary that's the first part of the question And, and secondly in your many meetings with him your experience of him are you surprised by hearing now that there's been elements of misconduct somewhere along the line um personally as in his legacy as a defense secretary um i mean bearing in mind if you look over look back over the past sort of decade and a half we've had so many defense secretaries like under labor there was like about four or they came in like quick succession didn't they yeah um and so at least he's been here for a while. You can hand that to him. So he's got a bit of longevity on his side. Although if he'd lasted until February, he would have been the longest serving conservative defence secretary. So he didn't quite make that milestone. Um, but in terms of actual delivery, I'm afraid I don't think history will judge him very kindly. Um, I mean, he has tried to fight the good fight for defence, um, but when there, there are some serious, serious challenges. And I don't believe he's he's managed to tackle them properly um and as for him i mean personally i've I've never i've never known him to be anything other than um very proper cool good place to end it thank you very much indeed deborah haynes the defense correspondent uh, for the times uh, michael clark in our newcastle studio how would you judge his legacy as defense secretary we were hearing there from deborah that he's pretty much the longest one bar one defense secretary for the conservative party and he has been a stabilizing figure hasn't he in that role yes he has and as deborah said uh, you know the mod needed some stability from the at, the at the political level it needed some continuity and he is he's very proud of the fact that he has presided over an increase in the defense budget. He said that in front of the Defence Committee only last week. He said, you know, the defence budget will be almost £40 in 2020 to 2021. It is going up in real terms. And I think he said something to the effect that I'm very proud of that. And I think that is part of his legacy. I mean, the problem, of course, is that although the defence budget is rising in real terms, that still leaves it a long way behind where it needs to be if it's to achieve all of the objectives that it set itself in 2015. What he hasn't managed to do is to, in a sense, rescue the SDSR of 2015, because if that strategic review had been had, is able to be to be pushed through, so that it does become a reality by 2022-2023, then fine. But we all know that the 2015 settlement is off course, quite badly off course, and he hasn't really been able yet to get it back on course. Now maybe this review uh, that we're in the middle of, maybe that will do that. But we we're not going to hold our breath in the analysis community because defence is in some trouble at the moment. Let's talk a little bit about this man and. 
and why now and, and why him? Because many expect a name to go into the role of Defence Secretary. It's not, you know, the height of the Cabinet, but it's very up there and it's very multifaceted, as you've, as you've alluded to mm. earlier on, Michael. And, mm. and this chap hasn't had a Cabinet position before ministerially, and there'll be an awful lot of junior Defence Ministers quite annoyed by this, I would imagine. Is there going to be ructions within the MOD? We'll see. Um, I, I, I think he will have, he'll have the formal loyalty, I'm sure, of, of, Penny, of uh, Tobias Elwood and Mark Lancaster and Lord Howe and people like um, uh, Penny Mordaunt, who might have you know, stepped into the role, I think will be very gracious about it. But um, the fact is that th- this looks like a politically convenient move. The point is, if, if you make the chief whip, um, put, put the chief whip into the cabinet in a senior level, you don't have to move everybody else around in the cabinet because Mrs May isn't in a good position to do that at the moment for Brexit balance reasons as well as this is a lousy time she's living through a, a really tough time for a Prime Minister so the less churn the less the less yeah. uh, uh, fewer ripples on the pool the better so putting the Chief Whip into that role means that you leave everybody else where they are the Chief Whip is by definition somebody who's loyal to you and he is very loyal to her personally um, and it's somebody who in this particular case he's no pushover he's he's tough and you know she, she may feel that she wants somebody who will not be um, uh, not be in thrall to the armed services. I mean, she may have felt that Mr. Fallon was becoming a bit too cosy with the military and that she wants somebody who will be tougher with them. I don't know if she thinks that, but prime ministers have thought that in the past. Gordon Brown always thought that. He wanted a defence secretary who would actually tell the military where to get off rather than work with them to create more resources and so on. So there's, there's, some, there's some political logic in what she's doing in this case, but she's going to have to live with the consequences of this because I think he will turn into I'm guessing, but I think as a minister, I bet you he will turn into a more divisive character than he appears to be as Chief Whip. That's a good thought to hold just for a minute. We'll talk on that a little bit in a moment, I think. But let's get a sense of how the opposition benches are viewing these developments. Let's talk to the Shadow Secretary of State for Defence, Nia Griffiths, who joins me on the line. Nia Griffith, I should say. Uh, Nia, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon. What do you make of Gavin Williamson's appointment? Should the men and women of our armed services be con- be concerned? Well, I think they will want to wait and see. I mean, they are very concerned about a number of things. I mean, it's only yesterday that we held an opposition day debate where Labour led on the issue of armed forces pay. There has been a pay freeze now for seven years, and that's really biting. And I think there are many, many questions that they will have. Quite apart from the the crisis we have in recruitment and retention, there's the National Security Capability Review. The government's got itself into real difficulties with the equipment budget. And... um, Quite, you know, quite frankly, he's going to have to be making some very difficult decisions very quickly. Do you have any sympathy for Sir Michael Fallon? Well, I, uh, I obviously do not know the, the detail, and he must have made a decision based on what only he at this point in time knows, and he must have made that decision. I, uh, I think what's important now is that for the defence of the country, we get somebody in there who can do the job. And I, I do worry, um, I do worry about the dysfunctionality within cabinet as well at the moment. I, I think that there is a, almost a paralysis. We've seen very little much of a, a manifesto programme. We're seeing confusion on Brexit. And there are big decisions I think we need to take in relation to defence and security. Yes, I mean, you've, you've held the defence brief for a year now. Do you think that someone without any kind of defence brief experience, like Gavin Williamson, can handle the cut and thrust on the Commons floor, the interaction with the military community, both at the MOD and external to it. And, you know, he's going to spend a lot of time asking questions from you, isn't he? Is, is, 
defence going to be at a disadvantage because the man at the top has never done this sort of thing before? Well, I think it is very, very worrying. I mean, first and foremost, of course, he has no uh, um, cabinet ministerial experience. Um, he is being put in a position where a lot of specialist knowledge is required, um, but he also needs to be able to stand up for the department, uh, particularly now in the run-up to the budget. He needs to be able to get the resources that the department is sadly lacking, and he needs to be a very strong and determined voice. And the problem with having political appointments, which I think is the way many people would describe him, is that that is it more important for him to do a good job for defence or to be keeping in with the Prime Minister? Um, and that's my worry. I, I really do worry that there may be political interference in his ability to do the job well. What can the ordinary man and woman in the street, member of the British Armed Forces, do about this at this point? How can they allay any fears they might have? Or do they just literally, like the rest of us, have to wait and see? Well, yes, to a certain degree, we do have to wait and see, but I think it's very important for us to communicate and to communicate the concerns that we have. Now, quite clearly, we have loyal armed forces. There are certain things that they're not in a position to be able to do. Um, so we have to speak up for them. We have to say that we think they need much better resources. We think they need to be remunerated better. We think we need to uh, sort out the recruitment and, and, and retention crisis and make sure they have the equipment that they need to do the job. So you'd be looking just finally and very briefly for an early statement from Mr Williamson on his objectives. Well, very much so, indeed. Neil Griffith, thank you very much indeed. I'm very grateful for you for joining us today here on SITREP. So, what will the military make of this appointment? Let's move that on. We're talking with it there with Neil Griffith. Earlier on, I spoke to the former Chief of the General Staff, Lord Dannett. It's a surprising appointment, given that uh, Gavin Williamson has got no previous uh, defence uh, experience or expertise. I'm afraid my first reaction is that this appointment is all about politics and sadly not about defence. Uh, defence, as we all know, is a complicated portfolio, a complicated brief to understand. And I was rather expecting that probably one of the junior ministers might have been promoted as defence secretary and not Gavin Williamson. But I think the bigger picture that Theresa May, the prime minister, has focused on is support for her in the cabinet. Uh, Gavin Williamson is a very strong supporter of Theresa May and she has opted to replace Michael Fallon with Gavin Williamson, another supporter of hers uh, and her position as Prime Minister and her position on things like Brexit. Now, having said that, uh, he is a good man, uh, an experienced politician, um, been in Parliament since 2010 and got quite a varied background um, to add to that. He's been close to the heart of government. He was Parliamentary Private Secretary to David Cameron for a while while David Cameron was Prime Minister. So he, he knows the business and having been Chief Whip, uh, he's had a very significant role to play within the Conservative Party. But he has now got a big job on his hands to quickly understand about defence. The defence budget is under huge pressure. They're going to have to make some big decisions in defence quite soon how to balance that budget. And I think the disappointing thing over the resignation of Sir Michael Fallon was that he had just begun to talk about the need to increase the size of the defence budget. He spoke about that at the Conservative Party conference just a few weeks ago. He had begun to understand we need to spend more on, on defence. I don't know how quickly Gavin Williamson will be able to understand the detail sufficiently and then to have the confidence to start making that case. Gavin Williamson has an interesting record voting in the Commons on Defence issues. For example, he voted against investigations into the Iraq war, but has voted in favour of combat operations overseas. What do you think that tells us about his credentials for this job? Well, I think we'll have to just watch and wait and see. Um, 
he clearly hasn't got a very clear track record as far as defence is concerned. But I would hope that he'll have the admirable quality of an incoming minister of being prepared to listen and to learn, to ask questions and listen to the answer to those questions so that he can quickly understand this complicated brief that is defence and then act in the best interests of the defence of the realm and in the best interests of the Army, Navy and the Air Force and particularly our soldiers, sailors, airmen and marines. Finally, Lord Dannett, a word on Sir Michael Fallon's departure. Were you surprised that he decided to quit and did it come out of the blue for you? Well, I don't think it came out of the blue because there have been rumblings about um, things that happened apparently 10, 15 years ago. But to be honest, I'm not qualified. I'm not well qualified to talk on those issues. I think it was a tragedy for him personally that he felt he had to resign. And it was a tragedy for defence that he had to resign because he understood the brief, which he's held for the last three and a half years, extremely well. And it's a setback for defence. Um, and that makes it a tragedy for defence, as well as being a personal tragedy for Sir Michael Fallon. And what should be at the top of the in-tray for Gavin Williamson now? It's the budget. He, the defence budget is under huge pressure. To try and balance or rebalance the defence budget, they're looking at making savings. Some of those savings are pretty ugly, as far as uh, I can tell. And I, I think what he ought to do as quickly as he can is to have the confidence to start to argue the case across government that defence needs to be increased, spending on defence needs to be increased. I think that to increase from 2% of GDP to 2 and a quarter or 2.5%, and that means an extra 3 to £5 billion pounds per annum, is not an unreasonable ask. I think it's the right thing to do not only to, to improve our defence budget at the present moment, but it would also send a very powerful message to our European allies and partners, that as the UK is about to leave the European Union, we are not walking away from our responsibilities to collective European defence, and we would deliver our contribution to that through NATO. That's an important message to get across, and we'd signal it really, cloud really clearly and really loudly if we increased our defence budget by, as I say, three to five billion pounds a year. Absolutely, Dana, former chief of the General Staff, talking with me earlier on. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, let's look ahead now because we have the NATO Defence Ministers meeting in Brussels next week, and Sir Michael Fallon was due to meet with Jim Mattis from the States. Is that going to happen now? Well, obviously not with Michael Fallon, but is the new Secretary of State for Defence going to take on that role? Oh, for sure, yes. I mean, he'll talk to uh, Jim Mattis, and that'll be the, the dynamic of that will be quite interesting because I'm sure Jim Mattis will be wondering who this uh, this young lad is um, who uh, is, is taking over at a very critical time. And what they're doing next week is they're looking forward to the NATO summit of February 2018. So they're looking forward to the post-Christmas summit. And they've got some big things to, to discuss because NATO's logistics are in a bit of a mess and the foreign ministers, uh, defence ministers rather, will be trying to put together a package which can be announced in February next year of an, probably a new logistics command being created in NATO and to really get on top of this problem because they, they really don't know within the alliance, you know, they don't know how many bridges will still will still take main battle tanks if they have to go over them the reception areas uh, are not in good shape, they don't really exercise anymore, the idea of moving troops around Europe in a hurry or moving forces around Europe in a hurry is become a bit of a distant memory and if NATO doesn't get on top of this then it won't have a credible 
global reaction to what they're facing in Russian forces. So there's a big agenda there for NATO, and that's what the defence ministers will be dealing with next week. And again, as with everything else, um, Gavin Williamson is going to have to pick all this up uh, at a, as on the run and sound convincing with it. Obviously, he'll be well backed up by the civil service, but he's got an enormous brief to try to get on top of in the next uh, two weeks. And just going back to what you said at the top of that, Michael, youth, he is 41 years of age, and a lot of the NATO high-ups are slightly older. They've had full military careers, a number of them. Uh, James Mattis, for example. How yeah. is his youth going to play out amongst that group? Well, uh, it's a bit like uh, Macron in France, President Macron. You know, how does he get on with you know Angela Merkel and, and some of the other uh, sort of grandees in the EU? He has to be sufficiently humble that he's new to this and he wants to learn and he wants to listen. But equally, he's got to show that he can master the detail. And if you get somebody who, in a sense, is always... Uh, relying on the fact that they're new and they're young to it, then they won't be taken seriously. But equally, if he goes the other way and he looks precocious, looks as if he's showing off, um, then they'll think he's just a young whippersnapper. So dealing as a 40-year-old amid a a group of 60-year-olds who've got combat experience around the world, you've got to be very, very careful. There's a middle line to draw there between being being detailed enough, being on top of your brief, but being humble enough to know that you want to learn from them. Yes, it's going to be tricky, isn't it? Professor Michael Clark, it's been great having you on the programme right throughout it, and thank you very much indeed for joining us from your little studio up there in Newcastle. Thank you. And also thanks to Alistair Bunkle from Sky News, Deborah Haynes from The Times, the Shadow Defence Secretary Nia Griffith and Lord Dannis as well, my other guests on the programme today. Uh, Kate Chabot and Christopher Lee will be back in this studio next week and by then we'll probably learn a lot more about what the new Secretary of State for Defence will be like, Gavin Williamson. Uh, so thank you for joining us on SITREP. You can tune into the podcast and listen to the rest if you've just joined us right at the end. So do that if you possibly can. But from me, Tim Cooper and the entire Sitrep team, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. The best of British news, sport, and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.